This is Better Benefits, a podcast from the team at Brella Insurance. We're talking about how to use employee benefits to build a world where health hardships don't create financial burdens. If you're a broker or employer looking for fresh ideas and new products employees will actually use, this show's for you. Hi there, I'm Laura Cave, Head of Marketing here at Brella, and I'm here with my Chief Revenue Officer, Mike Zarillo, for Better Benefits Episode 19. Today, our guest is Kim Heald. She's the National Practice Leader for Voluntary Benefits at Leading Benefits Brokerage, NFP. Mike, I'm really excited to get Kim's perspective today because she's really an expert at using voluntary benefits to supplement an employer's health benefits strategy. I'm wondering if you can tell us how you got connected to Kim and what you're hoping that we'll learn from her today. Hey, Laura. Yeah, great to be back with you for another episode. And uh, yeah, so I met Kim about a year or so ago as we were in the process of introducing Brella to the broker community in Texas. And and right away, I had a chance to sort of witness Kim's passion for voluntary benefits. She really gets it. She's been very helpful for us as we've evolved our story and and as we went to market over the last year. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from her and her views on how today's voluntary benefits can help employers and employees solve their challenges and just get her view of the overall landscape. And and what I love about Kim is her passion for voluntary benefits, and she really believes in it. And, and, And that includes the traditional plans like accident and critical illness and hospital indemnity, which we talk a lot about on our show is how different we really are compared to those to those products. But you know, as you'll hear from Kim, I think she's open to new thinking and new ideas. At the end of the day, she's really just focused on how to help employers create the best plans possible for their uh, employees. And, and, uh, and that's really great. So for our brokers who are listening, this is a chance to hear from someone who gets it. And for employers who might be tuning in, I think this is really going to spark some ideas for how to address some of the biggest challenges that come with today's health benefits. Awesome. Well, why don't you go ahead and introduce us to Kim? You got it. So as I mentioned, Kim, someone who just has a real passion for voluntary benefits, she's vice president and national practice leader at NFP, one of the largest and best known benefits brokerages. And she's been responsible for establishing a voluntary benefits center of excellence within NFP with a focus on the end user and how these benefits ultimately protect employees and their families. So, Kim, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, guys. I'm excited about this. So, Kim, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up in this role at NFP. Uh, Well, should I start where I was born? I'm kidding. (laughs) So, you made a comment earlier about I don't think anybody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to be an insurance professional. So, I actually... I'll start with ADP. So I spent about six or seven years at ADP. Um, And if you know anything about them, they kind of churn out really, if you're not an aggressive salesperson, it's like, bye, right? So I spent a few years there. And on the back half of my time there, I started, I was part of the broker alliance channel. And so what that meant was I would uh, call on brokers and try to kind of sell our technology as something that would be useful to what they were doing. I think back in the day, I mean, that's when enrollment technology was really starting to take form or take shape. And so after I left ADP, I was actually a broker here at a firm in South Florida, which which is a national consultancy. And and real quickly, I realized that I didn't, I wasn't going to win on my 
self-funded ability because I didn't, couldn't even have spell self-funding, but I knew that I was going to beat people at education and communication because a lot of the people I was competing with weren't doing that. And I kind of stumbled across Colonial, right, as uh, somebody that kind of was two things. They were uh, voluntary benefits, but really they were communication at the employee level. And I fell in love with voluntary benefits immediately because I saw not so much what it did for the employer and the employees, but how much money it put in my pocket. So I think that's kind of where salespeople get started. Like we are money motivated people. And so the first case that I had done, I'll never forget, you know, it was a 300 life group. There was 80 grand in comp on the core lines, but then there was 35 grand in comp on the VB lines. And I was like, wow, that was easy. Um, And so from there, I just, every deal that I picked up for the agency, I included voluntary benefits. I decided to leave the agency and join Colonial. And so I spent about a year and a half there. And then as I moved around, I left Colonial, worked for another uh, carrier that was kind of just starting their voluntary benefit practice. And so when I was there for a year, I ran around talking to people about uh, voluntary benefits, but not that the company could do because they still weren't filed here. From there, was on the enrollment side for five years with incredible people, a family-run business. And I got a call from a friend of mine that had sold his business to NFP and was kind of quarter NFP's growth. And he said, hey, I think we're serious now about starting to practice. Do you want to come and interview? And so I came and interviewed. And actually on May 8th, I celebrated very quietly my two-year anniversary of NFP. So I'd like to say that I've been on every side of the business. I can speak broker. I can speak technology. I can speak carrier. And I can speak enrollment. So I think that makes me, I don't know, pretty good at now I have to start speaking builder. So that's kind of where I'm at now. So <laughs> it's really a good point though, right? Because if you think about it, Kim, there are so many stakeholders in in the benefits discussion, right? And and I think we'll get into a little bit around your passion. You sort of touched on it from a, an education and communication perspective, but I think you bring up a good point around all of the various stakeholders in the equation and how you can bring perspective to, to each of those conversations. Well, that's right. And none of it stands alone. Right, Mike? Like you don't just wake up one day and say, yeah, I'm going to add voluntary benefits. And then boom, they're added. Like you have to really take into consideration all of the moving parts to make sure that at the end, you have a happy client and you have, you know, happy employees. Otherwise it could go bad pretty quickly. So. Yep. Yep. Agreed. So over that time period, you know, Kim, in your career, as you sort of talk through, you know, those various points in, in your journey, you've certainly seen that the benefits landscape shift and change pretty dramatically, certainly over the last several years. So I'm wondering if you could share with the audience from your seat as a benefits advisor, what challenges do you consistently hear and see from employers, especially as we look sort of into this into the future and in, in, in this environment that we find ourselves in today? Yeah, I think we're still fixing yesterday's trash, right? So, and what I mean by that is when you think about the original delivery of voluntary benefits, if you go back, I don't know, since dinosaurs roamed the earth, but if you go back 15, 10, 15 years ago, the primary delivery of voluntary benefits was by uh, voluntary benefit brokers, right? And ultimately, your employees were sitting with a licensed benefit counselor, right? That were at that time, Overselling, some would argue, and I think we can look at bills today and still make that argument, but uh, selling high-priced benefits that people, once they elected them, kind of forgot that they had them. Or maybe it wasn't a voluntary benefits broker that was calling on bigger businesses. Maybe it was an agent 
right? Like a 1099 agent that was knocking on the door. And maybe that person was somebody's mother's brother's cousin, sister, right? That was talking to employees. And again, selling a bucket of benefits that were really good, but overpriced or too much, too many writers, too much, you know, like you could never really know what it was that you bought. And then on the flip side, it's like, oh, these bills, right? Like how do we manage these bills? And so you have a lot of decision makers that kind of remember that and don't think about or are resistant or reluctant to think that, gosh, that was maybe five, six, 10, 15 years ago and think so much has changed, right? And so I think that's probably one of the primary concerns is that you've got decision makers that think that these benefits don't do anything, right? They, they're too expensive. They're not useful. People don't file claims. And I think that's really kind of what we're trying to educate on and say, hey, whoa, pump the brakes. Uh, it's 2021. It feels a whole lot different than it did even in 2011, right? So, and then I think now it's how do you weed through which which carriers? How do you look at plan design? Do you look at plan designs? Like, how, is it the cheapest price? Do you try to keep it at a regular price but beef up the plan? And then how do you enroll it? Is it on my enrollment system? Is it an enrollment? Like there's a lot of moving parts. So I think that's, you know, I think I just said a lot, but in the, I think in there, there's an answer. <laughs> a lot of challenges. Yeah. No. A lot of challenges. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and the last thing I'm going to say, yeah, sorry. My last thing I'm going to say is I think what I face every day is pushing not only decision makers, but people on within the kind of walls at NFP to say, Hey, look at this as a core strategy, right? Like you and your clients are changing benefit plans yearly. You're increasing deductibles, you're increasing out of pockets, you're changing co-pays. And as you guys are making those changes, usually they're not lower. Usually they're they're bigger, right? They're more expensive for employees. And so use voluntary benefits as, as, a, as a core strategy to kind of shelter people from those changes, right? So if we believe that the average deductible is $1,650, but that the average American only has $400, there's a big gap between what you're forcing them to spend and what they have to spend, right? So use the voluntary benefits in whatever way kind of to shelter employees from that gap. So sorry, that's where we're at. Okay, so on that one, I have to say, I, I, I wish we had video because the red lights are like like just blaring you know, so clearly right now. And we didn't even have to pay you to say that because I think that is really the crux of, of where we are. And that's, you know, it has to be a core component to the strategy. The world around us is so different. And I, and I love the way you framed that. In, in fact, we just touched on that in a prior episode around that disconnect between deductibles and savings and the reality that employees face. And the other thing I'll just say real quickly, Laura, and I'll turn it to you, is this sort of idea of the way things were always done. We've touched on that concept a lot here. And it is some of it is just changing the mindset. And and that obviously is is work and takes a good broker advisor, you know, to be able to help guide an employer through that process. But some of it is also being willing to sort of look at things a little differently. And I, I really like the way you sort of frame that as well earlier. Yeah. I mean, my question was just going to be, as you mention all of these challenges, how are you framing that as as you look to the opportunity, both for the folks at NFP who are, who are looking to you for expertise and any brokers who may be listening here? Well, I mean, I just, I have to really kind of be assertive, right? And I'm I'm very lucky at NFP because here we have a ton of open-minded 
producers, consultants, right? We have people here that are really trying to help clients and look through alternative lenses, right? Not just do, you know, do the same thing over and over and over again, right? And so they allow me to be prescriptive in the way that we we do this, right? So when we present voluntary benefits or supplemental health benefits back to the employer, it is always a discussion around what's happening in their medical plans, or maybe they've got rich medical plans. Then we're kind of looking at, well, what's happening at the employee level, right? Just because you've got, you know, a $500 deductible, and by the way, are you hiring? It doesn't mean, you know, that, that the employee can still afford that, right? And so I have a really good set of people here that just kind of, you know, that believe in, you kind of believe in what I'm trying to do and and allow me to do that with their clients. But we follow that discipline, if you will, kind of throughout the whole process, right? So it's not so much, it, and it's never a 10-minute conversation about voluntary benefits. So what I've been able to get my peers to understand is that if we're going to really educate the decision makers on how these plans work, don't push me, don't give me a 10-minute window. Don't make me three slides in a 60-slide stewardship meeting. Give me an hour, right? Let me have a meaty conversation. Let me help employees kind of connect or employers connect the dots. And there I, then I think we've we stand a much better chance at having our clients understand the value and really see how it's changed from, you know, you know, again, 10 years ago. So yeah, that's the mindset change, right? Too. I mean, even just sort of the lead up to, you know, how do you get this part of the the overall benefit strategy to your point? It it can't, you know, we talk about it being an afterthought for employees at enrollment time, but it can also be an afterthought in the overall, you know, broader discussion, you know, and, and expect for that to be, you know, an effective part of the the strategy. So Kim, let's let's shift for a second now to the employee and really kind of dial into, you know, where I'm always interested in your thoughts on this topic. So we we know and you know that education and communication is really critical to help employees make the most informed decisions even if they're saying I don't want to buy this product, you know, to to feel good about making that decision. And I'm just curious if you think about where we are today, what what types of communication challenges do you face with employees at at time of enrollment? Well, I mean, I think it's gosh, that's a hard one, Mike. So, I think I read a statistic once and I can't remember what the source was. I, I, I it's a study that was conducted that basically says that the benefit literacy in this country is about four percent, right? So, said in another way, there's ninety six percent of employees that don't understand, right? Like maybe maybe they might can spell deductible and out of pocket, but don't necessarily know how theirs works. And you know, I think as an industry, we're kind of sometimes we're still at benefit booklets, right? Now we're doing virtual open enrollment meetings, right? So we're at slides. I think NFP is gotten is getting better at saying, okay, well we're gonna what added what additive components can we do to help employees understand, you know, what it is that they're electing, right? So we're looking at decision support technology to kind of help employees navigate that that decision making. We still sometimes, you know, kind of lean our on our enrollment partners. But at the end of the day, I think it really kind of rests with the client. And if the client believes in education, right? So, and what I mean by that is you spend about four or five months kind of tackling your renewal and getting, you know, hours of back and forth. And you finally get the plans and the benefit package to where you think you want it and need it. And then you say, well, 
it's a, it's on you, employee, if you want to come in here and you want to do something different or do something new or read the benefit booklet or look at the videos. And, you know, I think, and not to be combative, but I think employers probably can be a part of the solution, right? And force the issue and make the investment on better communication tools, no matter what they are, right? But at the end of the day, the end user is the client. And if the if the client is spending hundreds of thousands or tens of millions of dollars on medical spend, a portion of that should be should be spent on making sure their employees understand what those tens of millions of dollars mean, right? And it's it goes further than a benefit booklet. And so we're at NFP, we're kind of we are looking through those different solutions uh, to see what we can provide for our clients that could impact, you know, how employees understand what they're buying. That was a lot. Yeah. Did I, I answer the question? No, Sorry. <laughs> you did. And correct. Okay. No, I think that's incredibly, in, no, it's incredibly insightful because the one thing that you said that I think sometimes we forget, right? We talk about this education and communication and it's how do we educate that employee on the product itself that they're being asked to consider for purchase. And in reality, that's, it's sort of too late because really what that employee needs to understand to your point around, you know, healthcare literacy is how does my health plan work? What am I responsible for? What is my exposure? Before I even get into considering that CI or accident or umbrella product, I have to have that foundational knowledge of where my exposure, you know, lies. And I, and I think sometimes we forget that, right? We immediately go to the product. Well, this is how the product works and this is what it pays. Well, it might be disconnected from reality in that employee's mind because they're not associating it to any perceived need that they might have. And I just, I think that's a really great insight. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's right, Mike. And I think, you know, if we, if we go kind of, if we get kind of really in the weeds here, kind of get in the nitty gritty, it's like, I always kind of, you know, I have this saying that supplemental health benefits supplement your health benefits, right? And so when you look at benefit booklets, I mean, 50 pages, to be fair, sometimes 60 pages. I mean, I've seen some as big as a hundred pages. And I think those are more monster clients, but like, and what I've seen is you have always, you have your enrollment instructions in the front, you know, general announcements, you know, CEO writes a letter, and then you kind of move into your medical options. And that's, you know, a few, a dozen pages, maybe. And then you go through dental, vision, life, disability. And then we finally get to the voluntary benefits and there may be a paragraph or two, and they're literally backed by the notices that nobody reads, right? So how on earth are employees going to connect the dots on how the supplemental health plans supplement their health plans if the medical plans are in the front of the booklet and the voluntary benefits are in the back of the booklet, right? Like as consultants, we have conditioned our employees. They know that they need to decide on medical, dental, vision, life, and disability. They We haven't gotten them to the point that they also have to spend as much time on the supplemental health stuff. And why would they? It's literally a paragraph with a phone number backed by like, you know, I don't know, baby notices, right? So we're, we're really trying to, or Medicaid notices, right? Really trying to kind of reposition them and get, give them more focus at the front so that uh, we can spoon feed the connecting the dot situation. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Because when you think as a, just as a consumer about what happens to me if I get sick? Like, how does all this work? And if you make a, a decision in a vacuum about your health plan and you don't consider 
the voluntary piece or an HSA piece or anything else that could be contributing to the picture, you're going to, you could overspend on premiums to try to drive your deductible down. And you're not taking advantage of the way that these tools are designed to save you money and still give you the coverage that you need. And, and that's such a shame. And like, we're perpetuating that in the industry. If we're educating people on individual products instead of on the employee's actual experience. So all the health things together. That's right. I was at my girlfriend's house last night. We were sharing a glass of wine and she is 100. I said, we, uh, she's coming up to her open enrollment, right? And she's going to let me sit with her. And I love to do that. And she's like, I remembered. She's like, I'm like, how many times have you gone to the doctor this year? And she's like, literally only for Lee's concussion. Cause he felt he took a header off of his bike. And she's like, had I had that plan, I could have gotten paid on the concussion. And I said, yeah, but she is a perfect example of somebody who has elected the most expensive medical plan because she thinks that one is the best. Okay. She has no idea how it works. All she, and all she's done in the last nine months is go to the urgent care and to manage her son's concussion. So can you like, that's. It's thousands of dollars in overpayment for health right. premiums. That's right. Hey, yeah. She's transferring the risk and she's paying a premium, but she doesn't understand. And she is a highly educated money motivated person. Right. I mean, so yeah, I could beat that. I could beat that horse until it's really dead. <laughs> I, know. Right. I know. I know. I used to counsel folks in the in individual enrollment plans when I, in a past life. And I used to tell people like, take the deductible, put money aside. And if you don't need it, go to Disneyland. That's right. Rome. I'm never going to Disneyland again. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah, Do I something yeah, yeah, yeah. fun. That's right. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, I guess as a follow-up to that, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the metrics then that you look at to, to determine the success of a voluntary program for an employer group. Well, I think it begins with if the client gives us the permission to take the best practices that we're prescribing, right? So, you know, and it kind of follows everything. So we, you know, if you think about what's happening in your benefit booklet, we're taking the voluntary benefit or the supplemental benefits from the back to the front, right? In our open enrollment materials, we're taking them from the back to the front. In enrollment technology, we're taking them from the bottom to the top, right? So we're really doing the best that we can to give these benefits the focus that they deserve. Because again, you're going to buy dental insurance, Lauren, it doesn't matter where it is in the sequence, right? Whether it's first or last, you know, you're going to buy dental insurance, right? And so I think that's the first metric is, is the client allowing us to be prescriptive and uh, be able to push forward the best practices that we've identified as being good for this benefit class. And then I look to say, okay, before I make a judge on whether or not I'm going to look very closely at the results is, has the client decided on whether they're going to make the enrollment active or passive, right? And this kind of goes back to, well, goodness gracious, you just spent you know months of your time and tens of millions of dollars in some cases, and now you're going to turn it into a passive enrollment? Like, And I get that there's work on the backside, and that can you know kind of make some people go a little nutty, but like you're asking people to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars, but you're not requiring them to go and look in the system to see what may have changed or maybe make different elections. I mean, on MoneyWise, I, I, I go to Yahoo News. I'm going to stray from the question for a second. Go to Money Use, MoneyWise, and there's it's like this like Dear Abby, but about financial stuff. And this one guy said, hey, look, I got divorced five years ago. My ex-wife is dead. I'm the beneficiary of her life insurance policy. Like her family's mad at me. 
what do I do? And I'm like, gosh, you know, like talk about passive or active enrollment. How many times is the wrong spouse or ex-spouse, you know, getting the life insurance, right? So before I decide to look at the re- results is, is the enrollment passive or active, right? Cause you're going to get different results. And then I look at enrollment results to kind of gauge whether or not people, the employees understood whether or not the pricing was right, the product was right, right? So it really kind of starts with how do we set it up in the front? How do we get to the employees in the middle, right? And those things really kind of dictate how the end result is going to look. But I would say if we, in a self-service environment, if we can get, you know, about 20% of the employees the first time out to enroll in, in this benefit class, I think we've done a really good job. And I think it's one of those things that kind of snowballs, right? Somebody comes back and says, I had cancer. I actually filed this claim. Such and such sent me, you know, three grand or five grand. That's the kind of stuff that employees hear. And they say, well, what do you mean? Like, where did you get that? Right. And then it starts to kind of snowball into better results year after year, but it does not happen in a vacuum. You can't just set it and forget it. You really got to put your booty into it and make sure that your employees understand it or back into it, you know, however you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I like the expression. <laughs> so Kim, we, those are great, great, great thoughts. So we've spent some time obviously chatting with you about Brella and, and, you know, what makes us different. Would love for you to share, you know, your thoughts and views of, of what we're doing here with listeners, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, so voluntary, this specific benefit class hasn't been entirely, hasn't been incredibly progressive over the, you know, since, you know, since they, since day one, right? Like maybe what's changed is that as a group carriers get into this benefit class, the, the benefits have gotten richer and maybe they've gotten less expensive, but they haven't really changed. An accident plan is an accident plan, right? A critical illness plan is a critical illness plan, you know, like that, that's kind of where it is. Um, so what I love about Rella is if we're going to talk about something that's progressive, I think that the way that you guys have designed the benefit offering, it's about as progressive as this benefit class has gotten in the last 10 to 15 years, right? So although it is answering the same concern, which is what's happening in the medical plans and what's happening with employees' financial, you know, personal financial situation, that's the similar message, but the delivery is totally different. And I love it, right? Like you guys kind of take the thinking out of it, which is good, right? But you've also kind of blown up, like it's thousands of, there's thousands of opportunities to receive a benefit, not tens, right? Not maybe hundreds, but thousands. And so when we think about how it works and the value it brings, I think you're going to have a lot of employees say, well, okay, well, why wouldn't I, right? And so I just... I would say that, Mike, you know, I mean, I love the fact that it's not, again, it's not three or 400 ICD-10 codes. And I'm kind of speaking, I don't know, you know, speaking a certain language, but it's 13,000, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's 17,000 bytes at the Apple, right? So I think in the end, though, we've really got to get employees to do what's right, file their claims. And what I love about what you guys have done is that you've also made that super simple. Nothing like getting my bill, taking a picture of it firing it off. And then you guys telling me, you know, within however many hours that yes, it's a payable claim, we're going to send it to you. Right. So, and I think that's the other trick is what I love about you guys is not only have you spent so much time and been so thoughtful and the benefit that you've actually created, 
but it seems like you spent just as much time on the technology on the backside to get people to actually utilize the benefit that they have spent money on, right? Awesome. Well, thank you for those. Thank you for those comments. And I think we talk a lot about how the insurance product enables technology and how today's technology has allowed us to also simplify the insurance product. So to hear you sort of, you know, from your perspective, validate that, you know, for us is is obviously really rewarding and we're glad to hear it. Yeah. And I want to say one other thing. And I, you know, as you know, I put you in front of some fairly tough people, right? And I think another opportunity for Brella is to get to the people, right? To get to the decision makers that have been resistant to add voluntary benefits because of the ghosts from the past, right? Like some, some people are just not going to be swayed. They're never going to think that an accident policy is a good idea, right? They're just not going to be swayed, whether they are decision makers or consultants. I think Brella and the way that you guys have created it, I think that speaks to those people, right? Like, and I think you have a shot at changing people's minds that otherwise have dug a line in the sand and said, no, not here, not at, not in my company, right? So I think you guys have done excellent work and I look forward to seeing, you know, kind of where Brella goes as you start to, you know, get approved and more, you know, kind of across the country. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Appreciate it very much. So Kim, as you probably know, so many of the folks who come on the show are, are really accomplished leaders who've done so much in their careers. And we always like to ask if there was a book, a resource, a practice, anything that has really contributed to your growth, either as a person or a professional that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Well, I would say early on, I had, as I entered the benefits business, I had an incredible mentor who really kind of showed me the ropes. And the one thing that I really learned actually was two. There was two people, one kind of outside that I met while at ADP was a consultant. But then when I turned into a broker, somebody there that just led me by the hand, what those two kind of really taught me is don't be scared. You're smart enough to get there. You will get there, but also don't be afraid to ask for help because everybody needs help. And people who don't ask for it are the ones that are going to get themselves into trouble. Right. So like in the role that I play now, like I'm, kind of an individual trying to build this thing, I need help. So I'm constantly asking for help. And I think that I would be really alone and really like failing if I didn't have the courage to kind of go out and say, I can't do this. I need help. So I'd say that's kind of one thing that's really guided me. But another thing and more from a, so like a training, right? So back at ADP, I mean, what was that 15 years ago, we did a training called corporate visions training. And essentially what that was, was training to keep your audience engaged. And before that training, we would go out and meet with prospects and clients, and we would literally take 30 or 40 slide presentations, and we would go through those slides, whether the client liked it or not. And and Corporate Visions basically said, don't do that. You've lost your audience, right? And so pay attention to these best practices and keeping your audience engaged. And so what that did for me is it gave me permission to not just go out and give 30 you know, slide presentations, but to reduce my content in a way that uh, maybe it's four or five slides, but that no matter what I'm talking about, I'm constantly keeping my audience engaged that they're not literally asleep in the middle of my presentation, right? Because that's what it was. It was like, 
your brain, your brain is awake in the beginning and your brain is awake in the end, but it's not awake in what they call the hammock. And so that's when you, in the meat of your presentation is when you need people to stay kind of awake with you. And so that kind of stuck with me. And then lastly, like keep going, don't give up. It's hard. What we do is hard. And if somebody says no to you today, keep going because at some point they're going to say yes to you. So I like it a lot. I think that's great advice. You know, like you need to ask for help. You need to make sure that you're actually getting something across that's valuable and not just phoning it in and going through the slides. Nobody wants to live their life like that. Oh my God. 30, 30 slides. And it's like, <sighs> I, know. Sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. That's great. Well, Kim, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning and sharing your wisdom and expertise. I think it's really exciting what you're doing at NFP and, and we'll be really excited to see where that goes and looking forward to working together on all of that. Thanks for having me, you guys. It was been, it's been fun. All right. So Mike, I wonder, we just talked about a lot. I'm wondering if there are a couple of key, key sound bites, key ideas that are going to hang with you from what Kim shared. Yeah, for sure. Well, I told you she's awesome, right? I mean, just great passion and energy and, and commitment to, to what she's doing. Two things for me sort of stuck out. First, she, she used the term ghosts of the past. And I think as we think through benefits and where we are, it does require folks to be willing to think a little differently, to try things differently, to not necessarily hang on to the way things were always done. It's just a great reminder, certainly when you think about this product set and what we're trying to do from a from umbrella perspective. I, I love that, those insights. Then, and then this concept of education and communication, again, it gets thrown around a lot when we talk about offering benefits on a voluntary basis. And and, you know, Kim's insights on, you know, focusing in on healthcare literacy just, again, resonated with me because it's, it's being able to connect the dots to the actual products, but, but more importantly, to the, to the needs that employees have and the challenges and some of the exposure that they might face. So getting them to understand that. How about for you? I mean, I'm so, I'm glad that she brought up this idea of asking for help. I just think that it's so important and something that I didn't start doing until later in my career. And just admitting that like somebody is awesome at this and it's not me. So how can I go find that person and ask them to share what they're awesome at? Everybody feels good about that. And if you can put aside your pride and and admit the things they are not strong in, that becomes like an area of partnership and it, it becomes an area of strength. And so I just thought that was a really great reminder. And and the other thing that I thought um, she just did such a good job of explaining and, and really brought home for me was that, you know, it's not enough to have a great product. You know, Brella's new, Brella's doing cool things in our, in our plan design, but there are, are holistic changes that need to happen in terms of how our product is presented. It needs to be part of the holistic health benefits strategy. It needs to be part of that conversation, both for the employer and for the employee when it comes to enrollment. And that enrollment needs to be an active enrollment. And these are things that we cannot control. And it's one of the reasons why brokers are so important to helping drive change in this industry, because they're the experts who are connecting all the dots and are making sure that that gets delivered in a way that delivers that education that you mentioned. So I thought that was that was really important. Yeah, that's a great call out. I really do appreciate us sort of wrapping this episode on that point. You know, and again, I try to selfishly plug what we're doing here as much as we can. 
you know, we think we've built, we know we've built a product that is a really strong complement to that overall health strategy, health plan discussion. But we've got to take it a step further. And, you know, I think um, the way you and, and Kim have articulated how we pull all that together is, is certainly, uh, certainly important. Wonderful. Well, if you're listening and you would like to connect with Kim or learn more about NFP, you can visit their website at nfp.com. And um, we'll go ahead and put all of this information into the show notes that you can find on our blog. And then in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with Mike or learn more about Brella, you can visit our website at joinbrella.com or email us at sales at joinbrella.com. Visit joinbrella.com slash podcast for notes from today's show. And if you liked the episode, share it with a colleague. This helps us spread the word. Be sure to subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss our next episode. And that's a wrap. This is Laura Cave and Mike Zarillo from the Better Benefits Podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.